Ludus Novus, Episode 11, for June 9th, 2008. Written in Blood. Hello everyone and welcome to Ludus Novus, the podcast about the art of interaction, about how video games and other interactive media can be art and more than what they are right now. Today I'm going to be talking about the contract that is made between the player and the author of an interactive work. Uh, I touched upon this a little bit in my discussion of Kuroshi 2.0. There I called it a, a betrayal of the player by the author. Um, the, the specific instance in which it first came up was that it was established that if you were stuck you could press R to reset the level. And R, in, I, I'd almost say typically throughout the game, did not in fact reset the level. It reset most of the level. A whole lot of the levels there, the solution was to press R to restart, but it wouldn't really restart. It would just restart a little bit. And, and that, in that sense, it was changing up the rules on the player. Um, you can't see my hand gestures. It was changing up the rules on the player so that the, the developer had, in fact, lied to the player when he said that re, R reset the level. And uh, in the comments, I, I expanded on that a little more, but... The, the, that idea of a trust between the developer and the player um, ties into this idea of a, of a player-developer contract. This contract isn't explicit. There's nowhere where it's written down in in the uh, laws of ethics of game developers or anything that there's this contract. No, it's not included in the end-user license agreement for any games that I know of, although it would be kind of cool if it did. But this is an understood contract. This is a contract of things that the player can reasonably expect from a game and that the developer can reasonably expect a player to want in a game. And, I mean, this is not this is very basic stuff. This is not even as far as the idea of a player's bill of rights. That, that It doesn't even go that far. But I still think it's valuable to know these when discussing video games and when discussing interactive works because a lot of the times we see that these, rule, that these contractual obligations are bent or broken. So I'll get to my list. The first item in this contract is very basic. 
the work can be played by the player. The player assumes that they will be able to play the work. Um, this seems like it's really basic, but there are games that are incompatible with your system often. You'll buy a game from a store and it turns out that it's not compatible with your video card or something like that. And that's a case where the work can't be played by the player. The player may meet the requirements that are on the box, but due to an unforeseen compatibility, it can't be played. And that's a really basic one. The next one is a little more, a little more complex. The player expects that the entire work can be played by the player. So not just that they can start the game, but that they can finish the game, that they can play all of the game that the author provided for them. So this, this is violated in cases where there's a circumstance that prevents the player from finishing the game. Um, a classic example is the game Battletoads for the Nintendo, uh, the original NES. If you're playing with two players, you can't beat one of the levels because there is a bug which will prevent you from continuing with two players in the game. I might consider Pac-Man one of these games that violates this, because in Pac-Man, if you keep playing, you have an expectation that you can keep playing indefinitely. The entire work in Pac-Man implies that each level will become more difficult than the next. However, if you reach level 255, you overflow the, the level counter, and the game crashes. And so that's that's a case in which that's violated. I don't consider that a very egregious case, because honestly, very few people have ever gotten that far in Pac-Man. I would guess in the hundreds. That's a, a pretty basic one that is often overlooked by improper playtesting. And it could be subverted in the case... I haven't seen it. And I'm going to talk about subverting these, these items on these contracts. And what I mean by that is intentionally broken for some sort of deliberate effect. So you could subvert the idea that the entire work could be played by doing something like permanently blocking off certain parts of the content based on player actions. That sort of uh, ties into my ideas that were started up by uh, looking at Execution, which is a game that I just discussed um, a few days ago, where the player would expect to be able to get all the content, but because of their actions, they might block off some of the content. It's sort of like making their agency more important. The player is able to affect more than they expect. So the third item on this player-author contract is, is the idea that through playing the work, the player can affect the progression of the work. This is really not as complicated as it sounds. I'm not talking about that there be meaningful choices that affect the plot, because players don't expect that. Players will perfectly accept a game where they can't actually affect the storyline, but they should be able to control their character, for example. They should be able to get a higher score if they do better. And it, it seems like a very basic thing. It's, it's the essence of interaction, right? But it's in fact subverted by a game called Ramses, which is a game where the only way the player can affect the progression of Ramses, which is a text adventure, uh, an interact piece of interactive fiction, the only way they can affect it is merely by saying, okay, next part, next part, next part. They can tell the main character to do things and the main character will refuse they, the main character will decide not to do it because he's, he's too cowardly that's a case in which the player can't affect the progression of the work as much as they would expect that they'd be able to the fourth item on my player author contract 
is the, the player can expect the events that occur in the work are governed by a set of rules. So this is also a little, a little more complicated than it sounds. The way an interactive system, an interactive work usually works, is that there is a rule set that responds to the player's actions. The player will do an action, there will be a rule set that will evaluate that action, and there's an understanding that there is a rule set behind it, and that the player can figure out a little bit of those rules. And in most games, in most video games, this is really simple. It's, it's a simulation of a physical reality, where you, if you move, you can move. If you kill enemies, you they will die. You know, if you shoot at them enough, they'll they'll perish, etc., etc., etc. And this set of rules is generally pretty obvious and and often explained in the instruction manual or in the tutorial or through a, a teaching method in the game itself. But this is violated by one early interactive work, the Choose Your Own Adventure books. So the classic Choose Your Own Adventure books, a set of usually paperback um, books, unless you, they'd be, been bound by your library, in my case, um, where you'd be offered a set of choices after blocks of prose. So if you want to tease the walrus, turn to page 44. If you want to tell the walrus you're its mother, turn to page 18. One of the distinctive qualities of these works is that they were filled with interesting and unpredictable death. As you read through this book, you might make a wrong choice and turn to a page that just described your character's or some character's death. And there was typically no way of knowing that your death would occur when you chose the page, and in fact, almost always, there was no way of knowing what course the story would follow if you made a choice. And usually the choices would be completely arbitrary. Deciding whether to go to school or not would determine whether you were going to face an alien fleet or a mailman who turned out to be a zombie. You know, it, it, they had no apparent relation to the choices you made, and even after playing through one possible sequence of actions, you didn't know any more of the rules that you hadn't actively decided on. So you didn't know, you had no idea what the other paths would be, and what even what the choices on those paths would be. And that's a case where the player would expect that their choices would be tying into a larger rule system, but they're not really. There's no rules behind those events. It's just kind of a random chance or the whim of the author. This is also seen in um, some poor text adventures where there's instant death if you happen to go into a certain room. There's no rule behind that unless it's sufficiently clued. It doesn't. It's not in the rules set. There's just a random death, arbitrary, that doesn't have anything to do with a, a system of rules. So those are the first four items in my author-player contract. The next four, which will happen after the musical break, will be a little more complicated. They're, they're not going to be as basic as these. They're ones that would be easier to break by accident and less serious if you subverted them.
Alright, so the first four items I discussed all had to do with essential qualities of the work. The work could be played, the whole work could be played, through playing the work the player can affect the work, and the progress of the work is governed by a set of rules that are internally consistent. Those are pretty basic. Um, these next four rules are going to be, uh, they're a little more complicated, they have to do with the process and a little more with the interaction between author and player through the medium of the game. So, the fifth item in the contract is that the set of rules which governs the system does not change through the progress of the work. The concept is that you can get new rules introduced to the player, but if a rule, a rule was true at the beginning of the play, of the beginning of the progress of the work, it's going to be true at the end, and things don't change along the way. Now, there are some games, uh, I don't really deal with competitive tabletop board game things, but Flux is a, a card game where the rules of the game change. But really what it is is there's a set of rules of the game that change, and then there's an overarching set of meta rules that govern how the game works. And, and that's a case where there's really the set of rules that governs Flux is really the set of rules that says, okay, this is how you can add and subtract new rules. And there are very few games, uh, Mornington Crescent is one of them, where the rules actually are fluid without a set of meta rules that governs it. Shh, don't tell anyone that there's not a set of meta rules for Mornington Crescent. That's a secret. Google Mornington Crescent. It's, it's an awesome game. But a game which actually changes the rules along the way violates this contract. It's something the player doesn't expect, and that's where Kuroshi 2.0 comes in. Kuroshi 2.0 subverts this. It intentionally violates this rule for this kind of comedic effect and also to sort of be clever and let the player be clever. It establishes a rule. The R button resets a level, and then it violates that rule again and again, and at times it doesn't reset the count of gold collected, or it doesn't reset the player's position, etc., etc., etc. It doesn't reset all the dead bodies, or there are various things. And so that's a case where the rules have been subverted. The rules have changed. In that case, it's on purpose. But it does create a violation of this contract. It's, it's jarring to the player when this happens, and a lot of players would reject that. I, I, I have to like it, but... There, there could be a negative response to that, and there could be a negative response to subverting any of these. A lot of people hated Ramsey's because it didn't let you do anything. But generally, if these rules are intentionally violated for a reason, then that's I'd consider that an acceptable positive subversion. If you're violating these rules for no real reason, for whim, just to be mean, I don't think that that's a good choice. You're free to make it, I suppose. And if you, as the author, accidentally violate them, you're going to want to fix that. The next item, item six, I can count now, is that any player failure can be avoided by player actions. Or, or in other words, player success is the result of players actively avoiding failure. So this is the idea that it touches in a way on the governed by a set of rules one, where the player can anticipate failure and avoid it. This is violated, in my opinion. Some might argue that it's a subversion. I think it's it's a violation by some of the bullet hell shoot 'em ups games where you're piloting a ship, shooting down enemies, and the enemy bullets and enemy projectiles are so fierce and dense on the screen 
that you require incredible reflexes or incredible skills of memorization that go beyond the reasonable in order to survive. I suppose since some people can beat it, this really isn't that much of a violation, but in my case, it personally, since I'm not very good at these games, it's a violation because I can't, I'm not good enough and I don't think I can ever be good enough to survive through a bullet hell shoot 'em up just because it's too complicated. There are too many things on the screen. It, and, and so in a, in a sense, I'm being penalized. I'm being told that I've failed by dying where I couldn't have actually done anything to, to avoid that. And this is subverted, on the other hand, by games like I Want to Be the Guy. Um, there are several other games like this. There's a whole kind of movement of games which are incredibly difficult where... You're, a lot of them are platformer games where you're running along on a, in a side-scrolling screen, jumping and avoiding obstacles. And I want to be the guy, in an early part of the level, you're avoiding falling apples that are falling from trees, and you try and jump over them to avoid getting hit by them, and then one falls upward and hits you. Now, this, this could be a case of the rules changing without warning because apples don't fall down. But at this point in the game, it's pretty much been established that this is a really difficult game where it does arbitrary things. It's sort of, there's a meta rule saying, yeah, we're going to change the rules up on you. Kuroshi 2.0 may also get this excuse. But the failure in that case isn't really my fault as a player. I can't have anticipated that apple falling upward, even though it's governed by the rules of the game, there is a consistent rule set that's causing it to do that, in that the game is trying to kill you. But my skill at the game doesn't affect whether I died at that the first time. And I just have to memorize that it's there and come back and get hit by it. The, the distinction in this case between, between this and a choose-your-own-adventure game is very fuzzy. But I, I think that, that it's a useful distinction to, to distinguish between a consistent set of rules that causes the player to die through no fault of her own, and an inconsistent set of rules. I think there's there's a difference there. You might disagree. If so, drop me a comment. We can discuss it. My seventh item is might be a little more contentious. It's the idea that the author provides a goal that the player can pursue. This is kind of complicated. So, while w interacting with a work a player typically has a goal. Typically this is provided by instructions or implicitly through the work. Survive. Get to the end of the level. Uh, get as many points as possible. All these scorekeeping mechanisms, all these failure conditions, success conditions, create goals that a player can pursue. There are some games that don't seem to offer goals immediately. SimCity is a canonical example of a supposedly goalless game because there's no real win condition. However, the, the author of that work, the authors of that work, provided possible goals. Make a really awesome city. Uh, don't run your city into the ground. They've got scenario levels where that have very specific goals. Goals having to do with reducing crime, having to do with surviving a disaster. These are all goals that the player can pursue. And I would say that a game that violates or subverts this is a game called Noctis. It's, it's an excellent game. I love it. It's a game of space exploration where you move from planet to planet in this procedurally generated universe and go down to the planet's surface and explore 
and you can name planets, and that's about it. There's no counter of how many planets you've visited. There's no real goal beyond, hey, there's a planet, let's go to it. I like it. I love the atmosphere. I think it's cool, kind of creepy. The graphics are terrible, but hey, I can put up with that because they work. And sort of, sometimes, if I'm in the right mood. But there's a game that doesn't really have a goal. There's no goal provided by the author beyond explore, which I would consider an action and not a goal. And that sort of ties into the next one, which is that the player can evaluate progress toward a goal. That might be where Noctis violates things, because even if you provide a goal in a game as an author, if the player can't evaluate their satisfaction of that goal, then you're violating a, 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 an item that the player expects. The player expects to be able to tell if they've won or not. So if, for example, if you've got a game where you're trying to kill a bad guy, you're trying to kill, go back to killing, because that's what we do a lot in video games, but you're trying to kill an evil overlord, and you can do it by slipping poison into various foods, and you don't know if the overlord is going to eat the food or not. Think of a game like Hitman. In Hitman, if you successfully poison the, the target, usually, at least in, in the games I've played, it will pop up a little cutscene that'll show the bad guy dying, and something will say, yeah, you've beaten the level. Imagine a game where that didn't happen. A goal's been provided, kill the bad guy. However, you can poison the bad guy, and you don't know whether or not you've succeeded. You wouldn't be able to access the bad guy to tell, say he's in another country. So, you don't know if you've won or not. And this, it doesn't have to be a clear case of winning and losing, but, but the player needs to, or expects to, be able to evaluate whether or not they've succeeded at something. I don't know of many games that violate this, this one or, or subvert it, but it's there as, that, that's something that needs to be considered, that even if you have a goal, you know, SimCity provides goals like make a city do well, but it also provides ways to evaluate those goals. It says, yes, you've got this approval rating, you've got this amount of money in your funds, you can get graphs and so on that evaluate your progress. And if you can't do that, the player is going to be a little confused. I'd love to see a game that violates that one, or subverts that one. It would, that would be interesting, because it seems like such a basic thing. I think it would be cool to, to see it, see a game that didn't do it. Anyway, those are my eight. It's the player-author contract. It's, it's the idea that each of these things, a player can reasonably expect an author to do it in, in an interactive work, and the author really should be able to expect that the player is looking for at least these eight things when going through their work. And if you as an author don't go along with one of these items, make sure you're doing it for a good reason because a lot of players, myself included for some of these, would just reject a work entirely if, if it's violated. If I can't play it, I'm sure you're making a great artistic statement, but I'm probably not going to appreciate that unless you make it pretty darn well. This episode of Ludus Novus is governed under a Creative Commons by attribution non-commercial license. That means you can do whatever you want with it as long as you don't sell it. The music for this episode was Broken, Durden version, by Durden, featuring Trifonic and Amelia June, and is also governed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial License. Those are both the 3.0 edition. 
I hope that I'll be able to get a next episode out a little more frequently, a little sooner than I got this one out. Um, it helps encourage me to do so. If you comment, let me know what you think. Send me an email, comment at ludusnovus.net, L-U-D-U-S-N-O-V-U-S dot net. So drop me a line, let me know what you think. Until then, do something awesome every day. Bye.